Well, good morning, everybody. I am full and ready to preach the gospel. Are y'all ready to sit up and listen today? Amen. Man, that was fantastic worship, and we know that we've worshiped well over at Spanish Trail this morning. It's a good morning to all of you that are with us over at our Spanish Trail campus and to those of you that are watching with us online from wherever you may be. It's always great to welcome everybody in the house of the Lord, and as Brad said earlier, another wonderful summer crowd here at Hillcrest, and we're grateful to be in God's presence, and it's a wonderful thing to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Our Bibles are open this morning to Acts chapter 16. I am full, probably a little bit over-prepared this morning because what I'm going to try to do is impossible. I'm going to try to preach a three-part mini-series in one message. I'm going to give you three beautiful pictures from the Word of God this morning, all from Acts chapter 16. And any and every of these three could make its own sermon. And so we've got our challenge ahead of us today. But let's see what God would say to you as we continue in this series from the book of Acts called Sent, in which we are, of course, focusing on the historic missionary trust from or thrust from Antioch there in the early church of the first century out into the larger Gentile world. Today, of course, we resume our travels with the team of Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, who is along for the ride. Luke, of course, being the author of the book of Acts. And we're together with them, you'll remember, on what is known as Paul's second missionary journey. That's what this series called Sent, this particular series in our larger study of Acts, is all about. We're looking at the three major missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, and we're right in the middle today of his second missionary journey. In fact, guys, if you'd show the map, just to make sure that we're all on the same page, you remember the team left from Antioch, the far right side of the map there in the yellow section, and they journey overland up north and then hard to the west as they go through Cilicia, which was Paul's home country, And they work their way up to the green region, which is South Galatia. The first part of the second missionary journey was a revisit of much of the territory that Paul had visited together with Barnabas on the first missionary journey. They go back to those four major cities of South Galatia in order to visit them, check up on them, make sure they were healthy, make sure they were growing, make sure they had solid leadership. Then they got confused. Amen. Everybody with me from last week? They were trying to get a bead on where God wanted them to go next. Paul had he thought, thought he had it figured out on three different occasions, and the Lord redirected him. They, they traveled literally all over the region of Asia until they landed at Troas on the Aegean coast. Guys, if you put that map back up there, they're at Troas, which is kind of the far left side there in the red section. And then the Macedonian man shows up. Paul has a vision, that Macedonian man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So they hop on a boat, you can see, and they go across the Aegean Sea, landing at Neapolis in Macedonia. And then from there, they walk 10 miles and land to the first major population center of Macedonia, which was, of course, at Philippi. And what happens at Philippi, man, is incredible. Notice verse 11 of chapter 16. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct uh, voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, 
which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Philippi was one of the most important of the Roman free colonies. It was named, of course, for Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. I've been to Skopje, which is the capital of what is now currently Macedonia, and right in the heart of the city is one of the largest statues that I've ever seen in my life of Philip of Macedon. He founded the city in the 4th century B.C., 400 years before the time of Christ. It was now Roman-occupied. It was a place where Roman soldiers tended to resettle after they had retired. And this is where Paul had gone. They would spend a relatively few days in Philippi when it's all said and done, no more than a few weeks. But I'm telling you all this morning, what they would accomplish there in their brief time in Philippi would be powerful and effective. They'd start a church. And what the Spirit of God would do through them would reveal, of course, once again, the title of our message today is indeed the powerful effects of obedient faith. Paul and his team are obedient to follow the will of God. And I'm telling you, when you're willing to follow the will of God, no matter how mysterious it may be, no matter how uncertain you may be about it, you put yourself in a position for God to accomplish awesome things through you. Luke doesn't record everything about their gospel ministry in Philippi. That would have probably occupied a brief book. But he does give us three very important vignettes, three scenes, if you will, that reveal the incredible power of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to save, the incredible power of God to save, regardless of who you are, no matter who you are, what color you are, where you come from, how much money you make, how much education you have. May I say it this morning, the gospel is for everybody. Amen. And that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. In fact, there are three kinds of people that we see here. First of all, we're reminded today that the gospel can save the prosperous. The gospel can save the prosperous. Now, before you check out on me this morning, let me say, in our Western culture, from the perspective of New Testament Christianity, the prosperous is everybody in the house at Hillcrest this morning. I ain't talking about billionaires. I'm not even talking about millionaires. I'm just talking about people who are blessed of God. And here at Hillcrest today, we got more money than 98% of the rest of the world. Amen. We're thankful for the blessing of God. So you ought to be thankful that the power of the gospel can save the prosperous. And we see that here beginning in Acts 16. Once the team lands here in Philippi, one of the first things that they do is try to locate a synagogue. Now remember, that's why they had Timothy circumcised. So they get to Philippi, first thing they do, as they do in every town that they visit, is try to find the synagogue because the gospel goes first to the chosen ones of God, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The only problem is in Philippi, they can't find a synagogue. And I'm sure Timothy was a little ticked about that because he got circumcised because of their ministry. What are you talking about, Paul? There's no no synagogue here. What's up with that? But there wasn't one. Philippi was not a good place for Jews to live. It was very anti-Semitic, as we're going to find out here in just a moment. Only took 10 men to form a synagogue, so you couldn't find 10 Jewish men in all the city of Philippi. And so the question then arises what do we do now? Well, the question is answered here in Acts 16, beginning in verse 13. 
And on the Sabbath day, we went outside uh, <clears throat> to uh, outside the gates to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And uh, so we went down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed <clears throat> upon us. So, no synagogue in, uh, in Philippi, but there was a group of women that Paul found out, Jewish women, or God-fearing women who worshiped the God of the Jews, who went down to the river in order to worship and pray. And one of those was this successful business owner operator whose name was Lydia. Lydia, as the Bible says here, was from Thyatira, right across the Aegean Sea, back in Asia, near Ephesus. Thyatira, of course, was very popular, known for its textile gills, uh, particularly as it related to dyed goods, and it was there that Lydia came from. In fact, the region that Thyatira is, is known as the region of Lydia. And so she bore the name of the place that she was from. It'd be like you naming your daughter Florida, amen. And so she was, she was Lydia from Lydia, particularly from Thyatira. And we learned that she's a very successful businesswoman engaging in the trade of dyed goods, garments and accessories. And she learned that from Thyatira, the place where <clears throat> she was from. And she specialized in those goods that were dyed, the Bible says, purple. Now, that purple dye was very expensive. Purple dye was the color of royalty. It was hard to reproduce. You got it from shellfish and from the roots of certain plants, and it wasn't cheap. And so that's how this woman made her money. Lydia was a fashionista. Can I say it this morning? She was Vera Wang and Donna Karen and Ann Taylor all wrapped up in one there in the first century. And people just loved her stuff. But far more important is that Lydia becomes the very first convert in all of Europe to Jesus Christ. The very first one, which makes her a very important person in Christian history. She's described here as a worshiper of God, probably a Gentile by birth, but she was, she's what we would call a Gentile proselyte. She's like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, the Roman centurion. Not a Jew by birth, but somebody that feared God, somebody that respected monotheism, not the practice of worshiping multiple gods like most Greeks and Romans did, but they were drawn to the worship of the true and the living God, even though they were not Jewish. And Paul shows up at this little feminine worship service that's going on by the riverbank, and he begins to share openly the gospel, both to Lydia and to those who were <clears throat> with Lydia. And I love this passage because Luke uses a very powerful and poignant way to describe what happens next. Verse 14, the Lord, watch this, the Lord did what? Opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's just great biblical language to communicate to us that she was saved. 
Because when the Lord opens your heart, you're going to see God for who he is, and you're going to see yourself for who you are. You're going to come to understand that never the twain shall meet unless God does something miraculous in order to bring you a sinner together to him, a holy God. And that's what God revealed to her. As Paul preached the gospel, the Spirit of God intervened in her life and opened up enough light into her soul and into her spirit where she could understand how desperate she was for God. And let me just say, unless God does that to any of us, none of us have any hope to be saved. Because we're so lost in sin, we can't even understand that we're lost in sin unless God shows up and reveals that to us. And that's exactly what happens here. She becomes because through the faithful preaching of God and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so that was going on this morning. Uh, And as a result of that, we learn that the spirit of God is also at work in her life. And she hears the gospel and trust Jesus to save her. To use Jesus' words, she was what? Born again. Now, that language is important because it's another reminder that it's not eloquent preaching that saves anybody. It's not fancy words. It's not eloquent speech. In fact, Paul will make that clear uh, in 1 Corinthians. No, the Spirit of God is at work in the woman's heart. And that just means her whole life body, soul, and spirit. God is at work, and he's convicting her and enabling her to understand that she's lost and she needs to be saved. And apparently, she's got servants there with her. And assuming she was a widow, maybe children. We don't know if she was married, formerly married. The Bible doesn't say. But she has a household, and that at least involved servants, and her wealth would afford her that. And so, all of those who were with her also heard the gospel preached, And they believed, and we know that because of two things that happened next. The first is that they were all baptized. The Bible makes that very clear. They were standing right by the river for crying out loud. They were like the Ethiopian eunuch who said, Behold, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And so presumably there was no delay whatsoever. The water was right there. And so Lydia and those who were with her that heard the gospel and responded to the gospel were baptized. And remember, in the book of Acts, and really consistently through all of the New Testament, uh, baptism is always intricately connected to faith. Nobody is baptized in any scene in the Bible where there has not first been an expression of faith. So you want to make sure when you're baptized, you're on the right side of your salvation. First comes faith, and then comes baptism. The whole household was baptized, not because mistress was baptized, but they were baptized because they had expressed the same faith that she had. Repentance and faith always go hand in hand. Where there is genuinely faith, there will be genuinely repentance. Where there is genuine repentance, there will be the presence of saving faith, one always comes connected to the other. And that's exactly how Jesus came preaching when he came on the scene there in the first chapter of Mark. The summer of his preaching is very simple. Repent and believe the good news. There is no disconnect ever, ever, ever between true faith and true repentance, which should be then followed by everyone who would call themselves a disciple by genuine baptism in water. 
So in Philippi, we see how the gospel can reach even the prosperous, even the successful in life. But there's another beautiful scene we see here in Philippi, and that is the gospel can save not only the prosperous, but the gospel can also save the oppressed. Several days pass by, and things get a little more dicey for the missionary team. We read here beginning in verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. So presumably this may have been the next Sabbath day. Maybe a week had passed by. And on their way, they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. So now things get a little bit more dramatic there in Philippi. And here's the second beautiful picture of salvation through the ministry of the gospel that we find here in this important city of Philippi. And the only thing in common between Lydia and the slave girl is the fact that they're both women. That's about the only thing that they share in common. They couldn't have been more polar opposite at further extremes of the socioeconomic totem pole. And this young woman is not prosperous and successful. She hadn't made it in business. She didn't have a penthouse suite, the corner office. Her company wasn't listed on the New York Stock Exchange. This was a young woman who was enslaved, and even worse than being physically enslaved, she was spiritually enslaved. She was demon-possessed, possessing this power to tell the future. She's what we would call a soothsayer, what Luke calls a fortune teller. And that ability has brought to her owners, the men who owned her personally, that's brought them an incredible windfall of cash. She's made the men who own her a lot of money. And what's happening here, she's following the missionary teams, both when they're together and somehow she manages to find them when they break up and go through the agora, maybe two by two, as they probably did. And she keeps repeating the same line over and over. Here's the thing about what she's repeating. Every bit of it is true. Have you ever noticed that every time a demon shows up in the Bible, particularly when the demon faces Jesus, the demon always knows who Jesus is? Seems like there's something in the Bible that says even the demons believe and tremble. There's a lot of demons who are more honest than a lot of human beings when it comes to Jesus Christ. There's not a demon on the planet roaming around in the spiritual realm who doesn't fully understand that Jesus Christ is Lord. They just oppose him with everything that they have. So what the woman is saying is true. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And so you would think the Apostle Paul would say, hey, let's bring her on the team because what she's saying is right. Well, it was true 
But I don't think her motives are true. I think she's mocking them. I think she's got impure motives. I think she's trying to mislead the public. And you have to be careful. Back in the Greco-Roman world, phrases like God most high, that's what the Jews used for the God that we're here to worship today, but it's also what the Greco-Romans used for Zeus or for Apollo. They referred to him as God most high. This concept of the way of salvation, well, the Greco-Romans used the same kinds of language to describe what their gods could do for you. So those phrases could be easily manipulated and easily confused by the popular culture. And I think the woman was trying to redirect people away from the God, the true and living God that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke were trying to point people to. She was trying to get into the middle of the mix. And as she was saying, hey, they're pointing away to God most high. With her finger, she was pointing to the local pagan cult. And this got on Paul's nerves. I mean, if what she was saying was supporting them, why would the Bible use the phrase, Paul was greatly annoyed at this? So Paul didn't think what she was doing was a service to the missionary team. And the last thing that he would have wanted would for his gospel message to somehow get confused with something having to do with the occult. And so when he could ha- take it no longer, he got greatly annoyed. The word can be translated troubled or distressed. So he was probably a little bit hacked off at what she was doing, but at the same time, he was deeply disturbed at the fact that she was under the control of the devil. And so there is some mercy, there is some compassion. He wants to rid the devil of this woman or this woman of the devil, not so that it would be practical, advantageous to him, but also so that it would be eternally advantageous to her. So he turns to the woman and rebukes the spirit, the evil spirit. And much like Jesus did with the man who was possessed by the legion of demons, the woman suddenly becomes calm and quiet and in her right mind. I love that change. You know, that guy with the legion of demons, he was totally out of control, totally dysfunctional, running around with no clothes on, chains hanging from his body, howling at the moon at night, cutting himself with stones. We're talking about a man out of control. And then he confronts Jesus. And the first thing he says was, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? He knew exactly who was in front of him. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And Jesus said, oh, I have no intention of tormenting you. I'm just going to kick you out. And he does. In the last scene we have of that man, the Bible says he's sitting still, clothed, and in his right mind. That's what Jesus can do for you. Take a man, woman out of control, lost in the bondage of sin, desperate in every respect, Christ, get a hold of your life, drive the sin out of your life, move in, take up residence, and next thing you know, you're a totally changed person. Setting still, calm, at peace, full of joy, able to think clearly in your right mind, knowing God, knowing yourself, knowing all is right with the world. This is a beautiful picture, and I know some people might say, well, you know, here's the thing. The Bible doesn't say that this woman is actually saved, but there's no question that she truly is saved 
because this is what happens every time Jesus drives a demon out of somebody in the Bible. The purpose of the driving of the demon out is to draw the person into God. And Luke is very careful to set this picture right in between the conversion of Lydia and the conversion of the Philippian jailer to follow. There's no question what he's doing. He's presenting a running series of events in which the gospel is presented and human life is changed because it's been confronted by the only thing that can bring deliverance and salvation, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one thing's for sure, if God can save a demon-possessed, enslaved, sorcerer, slave girl, don't you know God can save your life? He can do it. This is a powerful picture of salvation. But let me just say, it's going to get Paul and Silas in a lot of trouble. Philippi was obviously a tough place for Jew, uh, Jewish men to live. There weren't any there, apparently. Paul, Silas, Timothy may have been the only three Jewish males there in Philippi, as far as we know. So that's strike one against them, and everybody's going to know it. But then, more practically, those owners of that slave girl are totally ticked off because <laughs> their, their money... Their money, their money supply just has been flushed down the drain because now they can't profit <clears throat> off of this young woman's skills anymore. And so because of that, we're not surprised to read what happens next, beginning in verse 19. But when her owners <clears throat> saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them <clears throat> to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So Paul and Silas have landed in the Philippi city jail. And they've done so really in the worst kind of way because the first thing that happens is they've been ordered by the magistrate to be beaten with rods. I presume nobody in here has ever been flogged with a rod before. I don't think we'd recommend it. That would have mean that the backs of Paul and Silas and the backs of their legs would have been literally reduced to pulp, shred to ribbons. It would have been among the most painful things they could have ever endured. And then once that was done, they were dragged not only to the Philippi city jail, but Luke is very specific, as all good doctors are. He records intimate notes here, and he says they went to the inner prison, which is what we would call what? The dungeon. That's right. Now, this is the classic dungeon. This is as deep into the hole as a person could go. With their feet fastened in stocks, the stocks being attached to the wall. Can you imagine? Now, they can't lay on their backs. It would have been impossible. The pain would have just 
totally, well, it probably would have rendered them unconscious. So their feet are in stocks, but they can't lie prone, and they're probably having to figure out some way to keep their backs off of the ground, the bare ground, the dirty ground. Maybe there was some straw in there, the most unsanitary of conditions. It was just about the worst of the worst. Did I tell y'all last week the will of God is not always easy? I think I said that last week. If I didn't say it last week, I need to say it today. Just because it's hard doesn't mean that God is in it, and just because it's easy doesn't mean, just because it's hard, it doesn't mean God's not in it. Just because it's easy doesn't mean God is. Now, God intentionally called them to go to Philippi, go to Macedonia, and he knew what was going to happen when they got there. It wasn't going to be easy. It was going to be a hard calling. But what happens next reminds us that God's always at work because there was a reason that Paul and Silas needed to land in that jail because it's in that jail, in the hole, that we're reminded that not only can God save the prosperous and not only can God save the oppressed, but God can save the desperate. And that's what we're confronted with here beginning in verse 25. What will become a desperate man. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners <clears throat> were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened. And everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, the first thing that we notice here is that Paul and Silas obviously are in a hard place, but what we notice here is that they're in a bad place, in a lot of pain, but what just jumps off of the page at you? They have not lost their joy. They're in the prison house feet in stocks, backs ripped to shreds, broken and bleeding. And they're singing hymns of praise to God in the worst conditions, but they'd not lost their joy and they'd not lost their song. I wonder if there's some people at Hillcrest today going through tough times and you've lost your song. It's a terrible thing when you lose your song. 
The worst possible thing for a disciple is the day the music dies. But it didn't happen for them. I mean, all it takes for most Western Christians is to have transmission problems in the BMW and you lose your song. How many of you lived in cantonment last Friday? Friday week ago when the power went out for four hours on a Friday night, I was ticked off making phone calls and complaining about it. I was talking to my neighbor when I got home that night. I said, man, it's been a rough night tonight. Judy and I had to go to the Dairy Queen and kill an hour because the power was out. (laughs) Can't figure out what the Lord is up to, man. Come on. There are people in this room today that can remember the day the music died. And the day they stopped singing, lost their joy. Man, these guys were hurt and in a bad place, but they were still singing. And you know what that meant? It meant they knew God was bigger than the moment. Amen. God was bigger than the circumstance. Bigger than what was urgent. And he was. Things weren't going to get much better. Here comes an earthquake for crying out loud. And that part of the world is prone to them and prone to really bad ones. And a really bad one hit. And it shook things up in more ways than one. I believe that earthquake came so that one man and his wife and his kids could come to faith in Jesus Christ. I believe God sent an earthquake for that reason. And boy, it was powerful in many respects. Most of us who are familiar with the Bible are very familiar with the Philippian jailer. He's a third very distinct personality. He didn't look anything like the first two, do he? He didn't look anything like Lydia, because she's upper class. He's just a blue-collar, middle-class guy just trying to pay the bills. Now, he's not like the slave girl. He's not enslaved. He might have a little money in the bank, but he lives very modestly. He's not able to retire. He's probably going to have to work for many more years. He's just a completely different personality, common, average, everyday, middle-class Joe. And once again, these three stories together just remind us ain't nobody excluded from the power of the gospel. The gospel is for everybody, red, yellow, black, and white, rich, poor, educated, or not. The gospel is for you. And when that earthquake hit, those prison chains fell off, the prison doors blow open, and that jailer thinks he's in big trouble because he's charged with the responsibility of keeping those prisoners safe and secure until the magistrates could figure out what could be done with them. See, prison then is not like prison today. We send people to prison as a punishment for their crime, but you didn't go to prison as a punishment for your crime. You went to prison in order for the magistrates to determine what to do with you, either to beat you up and turn you loose or to turn you loose or to hear witnesses that would exonerate you or kill you. You were only in prison for a little bit of time. So that's why you had to keep a tight control of them. And the guy knew all he had to do was lose one prisoner and he would die. You didn't lose prisoners as a prison warden back then. Now the earthquake has blown the jail to smithereens. 
And he feels like he's going to lose all of them. All of them are going to take to the hills. And so he just decides to do to himself what he knows is going to be done to him. When all of this comes to light, he takes a sword and he determines to take his own life. But Paul and Silas recognize this. The first thing they do is get between the man and the sword. And they quick to inform him, nobody's left. We're all still here. Nobody's going to leave. Everybody's present and accounted for. And when the jailer hears this, man, I think he's not only relieved, I think he's on emotional overload. That earthquake hit, the jail's in ruins. And he asks the most important question that's ever recorded in the whole Bible. What must I do to be saved? Now, a lot of liberal theologians read this and say, oh, well, he's not asking that question in a spiritual sense. He just wants to know what he has to do to maintain his own life, what he has to do to be delivered from all of that chaos. But that's goofy because his life had already been spared physically. He didn't die in the earthquake, and no prisoner had escaped. In fact, he was probably going to get a promotion from the magistrates. He kept all the prisoners together in the worst kind of way. Now, his life, his physical life was no longer in jeopardy. So when he asked, what must I do to be saved, I'm just telling you, I think he's on emotional overload. I think he knew that Paul and Silas had been there for a while. I think he'd heard them preach. I think he knew what he'd been preaching. I think he'd been listening to them singing for an hour about God, maybe longer than that. And he can't figure that out. And so he wants to know, what, what have you got? What's up with you? Because I don't have that. What must I do to be saved? Man, that earthquake had probably reminded him he was within inches of mortality. As we all are. We live every day under the specter of death. We may never experience an earthquake but death is just a millimeter away for every single one of us. And he came to grips with that when he could have died and probably should have died. And he wants understanding. He wants to know what's going to happen next. I want the peace and joy that comes with whatever you've got. And so we ask respectively, sirs, to prisoners, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what Paul gives him may well be the most important answer to the most important question in the whole Bible. They said unto him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. Now, you know the thing I love about that? It's just radically simple. There's nothing complicated about that at all. And a lot of people said, within the sound of my voice this morning will say, you know what, I, just, I find that hard to believe. I just don't believe that knowing God could be that simple. Surely it's got to be more complicated. Surely i got to bring something to the table. But the bottom line is Paul didn't tell this man to do anything. I mean, he didn't tell him to get baptized. He doesn't tell him to go to church. He doesn't tell him to take the Lord's Supper. He doesn't tell him to give money, keep a set of rules. What does he tell him to do? What's the imperative there? Believe. Trust. It's our word for faith. But in English, we don't have a verb for faith, so we have to use believe. But what he tells them is faith in the Lord Jesus. Have faith in Jesus, and you will be 
say. That's all the man had to do was trust. But it's not just any trust. He's very clear. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And Paul goes out of his way to make sure that the man understands that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know why? Because this man was a Roman. Lydia was an Asian. The slave girl was a Greek. This man was a woman. Once again, we highlight the differences between the three. And Paul knew that this Roman had been taught from the time he was a little boy to take incense to the temple, throw it into the fire, hear the poof, and cry out very simply, Caesar is Lord. And he wanted to make no bones about the fact Caesar is not Lord. He may occupy a throne, but he's going to die, and he'll be judged by the one who is eternal Lord, whose name is Jesus Christ. That's the one you have to believe in. Believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, and you will be saved. And mark it down, our faith is not simply in a Savior who died on a cross. Our faith is in a living Lord who is seated upon a throne. And the way to salvation is not through a religious program. It's not in your own intellect, your own creativity, your own ingenuity, but by simple yet complete trust in a living Lord who alone holds the power of life and death. It's just that simple. Three remarkable events which convey to us the power of obedient faith. Paul and the team hear the clear direction of God. They follow in obedience to Macedonia. God welcomes them there with this incredible opportunity to share the good news with a wide variety of people who need to come to Christ, an Asian, a Greek, a Roman, a woman who had everything, a woman who had nothing, a man that was just getting by, one prosperous, another oppressed, the third desperate. Anybody here fit those bills this morning? Anybody here like that? Because the truth is, no matter who you are, no matter what you look like, no matter where you come from, no matter your station in life, this Philippian campaign reminds us of the incredibly and important and eternal truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everybody, and everybody means you. So if you're here this morning wondering that same thing, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to find my song? What must I do to be born again? What must I do to know God? What must I do to be delivered from all that ties me down in life? What must I do in order to find purpose and meaning and fulfillment in life? The answer couldn't be more simple and more clear. Then as now, it's as simple as one, two, three. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. This is God's Word, and let all who agree shout amen this morning. Amen.